This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. All right, 1025. I was told this is our uh, new start time. Uh, my name is Jared Wilson. This is a workshop on pastoral plagiarism in the age of AI. Um, this is an enduring problem, uh, plagiarism is, and the use of um, AI, um, I think, poses new spin <laughs> on, a, on an age-old problem. Uh, and new opportunities. So um, let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, we'll jump right into the mm-hmm. issue at hand. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the gift of this day. Help us to rejoice in it, knowing that this is a day that you have made. Father, as uh, this uh, great time together winds down for this week, I pray that um, for all those who have um, extensive travels, that everything would go smoothly. They would arrive uh, home and um, into all the responsibilities that they have left behind, um, not uh, tired, but re- refreshed and rejuvenated and um, armed with, um, equipped with um, all that we've heard here, certainly the information, um, but also just the, the joy of fellowship with each other and the exaltation of the gospel that we hear um, in the preaching and teaching as well. Um, so we thank you for conferences. Um, we don't uh, we don't need them, and yet um, we enjoy them, and, and and what a gift they are uh, to the church. So we thank you for all the good gifts you've given us, and most of all, we thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, who uh, anybody here in my workshop last year on plagiarism? One person. Okay. So what I want to do is just take a little bit of time on the front end to talk about plagiarism itself, um, because it still boggles my mind. Probably there's no one in in this room who feels this way, but it still boggles my mind that sermon plagiarism in particular, and then even just plagiarism in general, um, even in the Christian world, gets defended from time to time. It it boggles my mind that it's... um, it seems to continue to be a, a, a prevalent issue. So uh, just a couple of months ago, a fellow emailed me. I didn't know him. I uh, don't know his church, didn't know his background, but he emailed me to confess that he had been plagiarizing my writing in his preaching. Um, I think like things from my books and things like that. Um, which, first of all, I was in some ways um, impressed that he would reach out because it's not I don't know that I would have known because I didn't know him and you know, I wasn't familiar with his preaching or anything like that. But he felt convicted um, and I didn't press. I didn't ask him why. I didn't ask him what material. I didn't ask him how long. I just he, he was asking for my forgiveness and I forgave him. And he said that evening he was going to be confessing to his elders. And so um, I assume if it was a, a significant enough thing for him to feel that convicted to confess that it was a potentially... Um, that, you know, fireable offense or, or, and, and it just, it, you know, sobered me again to think that there are, um, you know, ministry leaders who feel the pressure and the need to perform in such a way that rather than produce something that they think is less than good from their own hearts and minds and labors, um, that they would take the risk of getting fired or, or, or just being found out. Um, to use somebody else's material. 
what is um, plagiarism? Plagiarism is the taking of someone else's work or the expression of certain ideas and passing them off as your own. And there's really two different kinds of plagiarism. There's unintentional plagiarism. So um, a few years ago, uh, we're a very high profile case with uh, Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill, Seattle. Um, this was one of the sort of tentacles in the, the knot of issues that led to his, uh, his downfall there and the, and the fall of the church. Um, as it pertained to plagiarism, I, I was never convinced that Driscoll was intentionally plagiarizing things. Um, in fact, I thought his issues were much larger than the plagiarism issue um, and, and, and were also disqualifying. But when it came to plagiarism, um, it didn't make it right, but he was such um, – uh, he was a man who really prided himself on on footnotes and at least appearing very well studied and all these sorts of things. So when you're looking at a particular book of his and he's quoting certain authors and citing them and then later plagiarizing the same authors in the same book, it was very easy for me to believe that's just either laziness or an oversight in the research process. Like I, I was never convinced he was intentionally trying to take somebody's work. Now, again, it doesn't make it right. Um, you know, it still uh, calls for vigilance for us and care for us when we're writing and uh, and producing material. But it, in my mind, it's a it's more easily forgivable when there's an oversight, when there's some sort of mix up in the cut and paste of you know somebody's quote to another, and the the footnote doesn't come over or something like that. Um, and especially, we run into problems in the academic world where professors have um, research assistants. Um, and some pastors who produce material will have, you know, interns or others who are helping them with research work. And sometimes from the, the grunt work of the researcher to now the printed or produced material, things go missing. And the pastor or the professor isn't trying to pass off somebody else's work, but because he's not doing really his own spade work in, in those things. Um, he can unintentionally plagiarize. Well, I just want to give some some brief thoughts on intentional plagiarism, right? So someone who is intentionally, they know that this material is not original to them, and yet they want to present it as if it is original to them. So the first thing that we should see just on the surface of it is that intentional plagiarism is lying. It's It's dishonesty. It's a violation of the ninth commandment on bearing false witness. Plain and simple, it's dishonest to present someone else's work as if it is your own work. Um, it also a uh, violation of the eighth commandment, right? Not to steal. You're, you're taking someone else's hard work. Um, you know, something you did not labor for, but someone else did. And now you're taking credit for it, or in some cases, even financial compensation for it. Um, and God has commanded us not to lie and not to steal, right? Um, secondly, and this is where I think... Um, it becomes, uh, um, I think, the rubber hits the road for the ministry life. Intentional plagiarism, I believe, is disqualifying. It's disqualifying for ministry. Now, why do I say that? Um, in the biblical qualification passages, First um, Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, um, we have the uh, requirement, uh, for instance, for pastors, that they are able to teach. Able to teach. Now, it doesn't say able to teach in such a way that draws thousands of people, right? Or that they're dynamic speakers or that they're really genius intellects or anything like that. But bottom line, they have the growing ability, they have the gift and the growing skill that they're committed to, to rightly divide the word of God, that they're able to communicate the truths of scripture in an accurate and clear way. 
Now, if we're using somebody else's work, somebody else's research, someone else's study, someone else's insights, and now presenting them as our own, we're bringing our ability to teach into question. Uh, it, it makes it incredible um, our qualification of ability to, uh, to teach. For the same reason, um, when, when I'm talking to uh, my students at Midwestern or my ministry residents at Liberty Baptist about sermon preparation, so just f- for their own preparation of sermons, I will tell them, do not go to the secondary sources too soon. Um, do your own exegetical spade work in the text. Um, you know, wrestle with it yourself. I, I know week to week, uh, pastors, in particular smaller church pastors, have um, extremely limited time. You don't have 30, 40 hours to devote to a sermon. At the same time, you, you want to be leaning into your qualification to teach. If the first thing you do in looking at, oh, I've got to preach, you know, John chapter 3 this week, the first thing you do is go to D.A. Carson's commentary on John chapter 3 and begin to read to get to all your insights. Now you're leaning on Carson's ability to teach or whoever the commentary is or the secondary source is. Um, it's, it's great to use secondary sources, but I think, uh, you know, the proper use of commentaries and, and, and other secondary references um, is to check your work and to refine your work. So if, if you're not growing in the ability to do your own exegesis, uh, and, you know, using your own training, your own insights, and of course, you know, the illumination of the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying you, um, you, you're bringing the, your qualification into question. Um, thirdly, intentional plagiarism, particular in the ministry realm, is unpastoral. Intentional plagiarism is unpastoral. And this is what I mean by that. Um, faithful preachers have their congregations in mind when they're preparing their sermons. Um, I, I like to say the difference between an exegetical outline and a homiletical outline, if you don't know those terms, exegetical outline is essentially the understanding of the text, sort of the skeletal structure, the, the construction of the argument of a text or just the narrative of the text. The homiletical outline is your points, the things that you're teaching or preaching, right? The three things I want to share with you this morning about, you know, God's providence are, and then you're going through, firstly, that's your homiletical outline. The difference, exegetical outline is basically answering the question, what does this text say? What does this text mean? The homiletical outline is, what does this text say um, to these people? What is God saying from this text to these people? So you're doing some translation work over um, if, if you're using other people's material that's been preached in other contexts, there may be, um, you know, adaptation that, that you can do. Um, you know, there are ways in which um, churches are all the same. Um, there are ways in which churches in different contexts are very similar. Uh, but no church is like your church. So constructing your sermon, Bible study lesson, you know, uh, discipleship material with your church in mind um, is is how you bring really your call to those people, to that group, to those disciples, um, to bear as well. Um, okay. Anything else I want to say about that? All right. So that, that's pastoral plagiarism. Let's talk about AI for a moment because uh, what is happening now is I think some gray areas where people are saying things like, "Well, I'm not taking somebody else's material that they worked hard for." And stealing that, Jared, I'm using the artificial intelligence, the, 
you know, the brain of, um, you know, uh, of the algorithm in some way to create material. It doesn't belong to anyone. Uh, and in fact, I'm, it's responding to me. I'm telling it what to produce. I'm telling it what to do. And so we have, I think, um, sort of a gray, in a sense, ethical area as it pertains to artificial intelligence. So I've got a few things that I want to say about that, and then we should have some time for questions or discussion. Um, the first thing I'll just say about artificial intelligence is that even um, if you're using it to, pr to produce content, to remember that even a disembodied source. So, yeah, I'm not pulling someone's book off the shelf and taking that material and saying this is from Jared, but even a disembodied source isn't me. I, I'm not producing that content. Someone else is producing the content. So passing off even an algorithms material or some sort of, you know, hive minds material as my own is still dishonesty. If I'm not clearly saying, hey, uh, you know, the text of this message is coming from, you know, chat GPT or what, you know, one of the other AI platforms. If I'm presenting someone else's material, even if it's a disembodied someone else uh, as my own, it's still dishonest. It's still dishonesty. In fact, you know, I think our, our, our congregants have a, um, um, I mean, they have good reason to believe when they show up on a Sunday morning to a Sunday school class or to the worship service or to Wednesday night Bible study or, or what have you, that unless the person's saying this is from somewhere else, we're getting the material that, that has been produced through that teacher or preacher's labor in the word, that they have been, you know, digging up the truths of scripture. Um, to, you know, uh, um, you know, scraping up the feed to, you know, to give to the sheep. I think our congregations have a good, re you know, good reason. Um, they come in good faith, um, expecting that, thinking that. Um, there's um, lots of AI um, uh, wrestling in even the secular world now. And um, I've been curious to see some of the ways in which um, there's been capitulation to perhaps the future of, a, of AI. Um, this month, last month, there was a movie came out called The Creator. Anyone see The Creator? See The Creator? Fantastic visually. Uh, um, there's lots we could say about like just the acting and the storytelling and what have you. What I found super interesting was the AI creatures. Whatever I don't remember what they were called, but the you know, the little girl and whatever, the, the robots, I think, you know, some of them refer to them as robots. The robots are the good guys in the story and the human beings are the bad guys in the story. Um, and the, the human soldier is protecting the little girl who's not really a little girl at all. She's AI, but he doesn't, he's supposed to destroy her, but he won't because she's AI. And when you get to the end, they make all these sort of corollaries about religion and diversity and, um, and it's not just that we should tolerate the presence of AI people in the world or robots in the world, but that they're somehow spiritually superior to us, right? They don't have the ego that human beings do or the need to destroy things that human beings do. And so you, you're seeing, which I just thought um, was just really, uh, really lazy, <laughs> actually, um, and just really... I think, and, and unable to read the room, the cultural room, right? With some of the advances, um, I find things like uh, Terminator a lot more realistic about the future of AI. <laughs> like, I mean, you give these things a mile, man, they're going to destroy us all. Uh, that's the lesson of Terminator. We should not be using this stuff. So um, I'm kind of more on the Terminator side than I am on the creator side. Uh, but we're beginning to see um, increasing use 
of artificial intelligence in the ministry realm, some in, 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 in experimental ways, uh, according to an Ars Technica article in June of this year, 2023, over 300 people attended an experimental chat GPT powered church service at St. Paul's Church in the Bavarian town of Firth, Germany. Uh, there was a 40 minute sermon. So even AI can't quite, you know, get the conciseness thing down, I guess. There was a 40 minute sermon. It included text generated by OpenAI's ChatGPT chatbot. And it was delivered by avatars on a television screen above the altar. So it wasn't even a live preacher preaching a ChatGPT sermon. It was an AI figure, AI video. The chatbot, initially personified as a bearded man with a fixed expression and monotone voice, addressed the audience by proclaiming, Dear friends, it is an honor for me to stand here. I guess monotone. Dear friends, it is an honor for me to stand here and preach to you. I guess some of our live preachers sound like that too, but um, it's an honor for me to stand here. But he's not standing there, you know, he's in on, on a screen, he's pixels, and preach to you as the first artificial intelligence at this year's convention of Protestants in Germany. Uh, Jonas Simmerlane, uh, a theologian and philosopher from the University of Vienna, explains, um, he's the one who kind of created this experiment. He said, I told the artificial intelligence, we are at the church congress and you are the preacher. So what would a church service look like? Simmerlane um, uh, gave a prompt to chat GPT along those lines. He asked for the inclusion of psalms, and prayers and a blessing at the end. And he concluded, you end up with a pretty solid church service, which I think is an ironic use of terms because it's not solid at all. It's not even tangible at all. Despite the fact that 300 souls gathered, it was a <clears throat> virtual experience um, replacing the concept of church and of preaching. So uh, just some thoughts on um, the use of artificial intelligence in the ministry realm. Um, the first one is this. I, I believe that disembodying any aspect of the preaching process goes against the grain of biblical ministry. Let me just put some of these. That's a long point. I'll sum it up by simply warning us about disembodiment. I think this is on a lot more people's minds than it would have been. This has been a concern over the last 20 some years with the use of just video stuff, video venues, video services. But it came to the forefront for a lot more churches during COVID. Um, those who, for instance, uh, went through either the, you know, extensive lockdowns and the production of live, either live stream or just video resources that people at home could use. There's a marked difference between those who said, this is a concession to what's going on. It's temporary. It is not ideal. This is a crutch, but we're, we plan to walk again. And the churches that said, this is the future. This is how we're going to do ministry from now on. You know, um, there's, a, there's a, a very significant difference of ministry philosophy. One is saying, hey, when you're hurt or there's some sort of providential hindrance, you've got to make concessions. But this is not how ministry, this is not ideal. This is not how we want to do ministry. There's others who will say, hey, this is the future. This is innovation. This is the use of technology into the 21st century. This is a gift of common grace the Lord has given us. Um, and I think in, the, in, in that wrestling, 
there are more of us who need to say the continual disembodiment of ministry, um, of, of the Christian religion, goes against the grain of biblical ministry. So let me just sort of uh, elaborate a little bit. Um, outsourcing any aspect of, the, of ministry life is worth being cautious about. But the more we detach, for instance, sermon preparation from the preacher um, the preaching simply becomes about performance. Um, and I think we can short circuit when we're not doing the work ourselves, when we give the work to some disembodied source and we just become sort of the, um, the outlet or the mouthpiece for some other work that's produced by artificial intelligence. It's, it's basically our way of saying this is really performative, um, this isn't anything that's worked up in the furnace of, of, of my study. Um, church is a consumer product, and we want to have the, you know, uh, an advantage in the kind of content that we produce to compete in the marketplace. Now, and that language is not new. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's you know, been around forever in different forms. But in that form, um, it's as old as sort of the attractional, you know, ministry philosophy, the seeker-sensitive church, right? They began to think, who's our target demographic? What are the strategies to reach that, tar- you know, target demographic? The Bill Hybels of the world, the Rick Warrens of the world. Um, they were using this consumeristic language, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and it continues to persist. And so if you have that ministry philosophy where church is essentially a product, then, of course, all the things that takes place at church are a kind of competition with other, you know, other churches that are, um, you know, angling for your size of the market. Um, and everything that takes place inside the church becomes, in some sense, performative. And it's just the slippery slope to say if if artificial intelligence gives us an advantage, let's use that advantage. Um, especially for under-resourced churches who may begin to think, well, we can save time, it's more efficient, etc. Um, a, t- <clears throat> a Taiwanese Christian magazine um, tells us recently about a pastor who used ChatGPT in his ministry uh, in a variety of ways for six months. He decided, I'm going to try AI for six months. And one of the things I noted in as he was listing things that, they, that he could do is uh, ChatGPT generates scripts for newer ministers to follow. So you've got younger ministers who don't, you know, have their legs under them yet quite, uh, you, you know, quite yet. Um, and they're not used to standing in front of people talking or they're just not used to producing the material that they need to, to either lead prayers or do devotionals. ChatGPT gives them material. Now you've got a script you can use and it's uh, it's a lot easier. Um, my question in response to that is how are newer ministers going to truly grow if they've been just giving scripts to, you know, to repeat? Um, I, I think one of the weird joys um, of younger pastors and newer ministers, um, one of the weird joys is seeing them um, not be good. Uh, and how do you get good at something if you don't start by not being good? Um you know, I, and I'm grateful for so many churches, actually, who are patient and gracious with, you know, you know, um, younger leaders who are being trained. Um, you know, we have um, at our church, we're in kind of a seminary bubble as well. And um, so we have a, a great number of men and women, both who, um, you know, w- want to teach Bible studies and, and all sorts of things. Um, and a, a lot of young men who want to be in the pulpit. 
and when, when they're not ready for prime time, right? You know, um, that their doctrine's right, but we just think we're not going to subject people to you quite yet. Um, I find it funny. We'll give them an hour long slot in in what we you know it's our our version of Sunday school is equipping groups. We'll give them an hour long slot to teach in equipping groups, but we won't give them a thirty minute sermon on Sunday morning. I was like, they're not ready yet. Let's give them an hour with people, you know. Um, <laughs> And you see, they're all over the place. They're fumbling, they're stumbling, but you've got to get reps in to get better. And if we're just handing them here, just teach this, just take this material and do it. They're not going to get better. They'll actually just increasingly lean on somebody else's material. Part of growing as a, as a teacher uh, is discovering what helps and doesn't, what works and doesn't. It's like working small muscles until they get, um, until they get bigger. Um, I'm concerned about the disembodiment of the process actually leaving us a poverty of leaders and teachers who actually have insight. You have a conversation with somebody who's used to just relying on artificial intelligence and you're looking for counsel, you're looking for biblical wisdom, and they're not exercising those muscles. Um, and, and, you know, so the person to person uh, gets robbed in the, um, in the 1980s, there was a movie called Real Genius. Do you ever see Real Genius? Okay. Yeah, Val Kilmer. <clears throat> but there's a great recurring gag. It takes place on a college campus. It's like, it's like an MIT-type deal, so it's like for geniuses. And there's a kid who's you know, a freshman at college, and it shows him throughout the movie going to this one particular class. And when he first goes to the class, he notices about half of the students aren't there. There's tape recorders. This is in the 80s, so it's not a computer. It's an t- actual tape recorder that's recording the professor giving the lecture. And then in the middle of the movie, he goes to class and there's even more tape recorders. So there's only like a handful of students there recording the professor giving the lecture. And then at the end of the movie, he goes to class and not only are all the students tape recorders, he's the only embodied presence in the room because the professor's not even there. It's a tape recorder like playing the lecture from the state. So you get a bunch of tape recorders recording the tape recorder, giving the lesson. I, I, I mean, it's a funny scene, but it just makes me think of like, is this where we're going? With disembodying this whole thing? I mean, in 30 years, is church going to be a vibe that you take in a pill form? You know, like, I just want the experience of church. I just want the feeling that church gives me. Um, it sounds ludicrous, but it's this is how some people talk about what church is, just how it makes them feel. That's They go for an inspiration, for a pickup. And how is that going to be much different than some sort of anti-anxiety medication, right? Or... You know, someday it'll just be a thing you download into your medulla oblongata. And you're like, oh, that's good singing, right? I mean, it's just, you've got the, you know, the memory implanted in your brain that you didn't really even have, right? Now, that all sounds ridiculous, but the more we disembody the experience of ministry, the more we sort of capitulate to that kind of idea, even if we never quite get there. I think of the Apostle Paul, even in just in his letters, physical ink and things, but saying, I wish I could be with you. Wish you could see my face, hear my tone of voice. Uh, that's him even in, in the tangibility of a pre-technological, or at least our kinds of technolo- uh, uh, technology, him saying embodiment matters. The word church uh, essentially means gathering, assembly, right? Um, secondly, AI, <clears throat> AI sermons, or just AI Bible studies, what have you, aren't faithful sermons because AI isn't saved. <clears throat> it's not even sold. So I'm going to say soulless. Even if you've got doctrinally correct material, like you're telling your chat GBT, I don't want some Andy Stanley jibber jabber, you know, 
give me give me some kind of Calvinistic something or other, and it can do it. It'll do it. It'll produce a reformed something or other if you give it the right instructions. But we have reason to suspect its content <clears throat> because there's not a spirit-filled soul producing that content. Um, and I think that's a reason to diminish its value. This is, this is, you know, zeros and ones being put together from some hive mind looking at all kinds of other material online and then just giving you some kind of homogenized generic stew from a soulless source. Um, and as I said previously, AI doesn't know your people. They don't know your Bible study. They don't know your community group. They don't know your congregation. Um, why would you want to preach to souls from a soulless source, even if the data lines up with where your data might line up? It doesn't have the connective tissue of your context, of your interaction. Uh, one of the things that the, the Taiwanese uh, fellow mentioned that um, ChatGPT helped him tremendously on was illustrations. Um, and if you're a preacher or, or even a teacher, you know how difficult it can be to come up week in and week out with effective illustrations. And for some people, they say it's the hardest part of the, of the sermon is, is fresh, creative connections. Well, now I'm going to use ChatGPT to give me these sort of illustrations. And I can't help but think they're going to be like the, the kind of thing, you know, before Internet. Uh, I'm not an old man, but I started preaching before internet really was a thing. I mean, I guess it existed, but it wasn't widely used. And uh, we had those books, illustration books. Remember those things? And it's just garbage. I mean, like thousands of illustrations, and they're all. I used to call them uh, little Johnny stories, right? Little Johnny was in Sunday school, and you know, he made a remark about the squirrel or so. You know, it's like, oh, there's the illustration I used. And what I've discovered over years of preaching is that the best illustrations come from my own life. Um, you know, certainly you want to be modest. You're not, you know, you're not using the, um, you know, pulpit as a standard routine or as a confessional. But the way you connect with your people is by personifying what they're hearing. You make, in a sense, visual in the illustration, some concept in the sermon and using a personal story from your family, from from your ministry life, from an observation, something like that. And I just think we 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 rob ourselves and we rob our people um, um, you know, of that, of that knowledge that we're a, fa we're a family if we just become the mouthpiece for some sort of AI produced content. Um, thirdly, AI makes a better tool than it does a workman. It makes, it makes a better tool than it does a workman. <clears throat> I don't, I can't think of a one word. Um, here's what I mean by that. Um, we're the workmen or work women, I suppose. Um, and AI is a tool. So it's better to put our words into AI and it, if you're going to use it and let AI sort of, um, I don't know, produce resources perhaps than it is to ask AI to produce the words that now you're the mouthpiece for. Um, in that case, you're the tool <laughs> and AI is the workman. So what I mean is your content should drive whatever way you're going to use AI as a resource. So if if you're working on a sermon, write the sermon. Don't let AI write the sermon for you. And then you may be able to put your sermon into AI and say, for instance, um, what are 10 discussion questions that I could use, right? Um, I still think this is a cautious area, but it's not quite the same as it producing the content. It's organizing your content. And I can see how it might be helpful, especially for pastors in smaller contexts, 
um, who don't have assistance or just themselves. Like, it, like I have a limited amount of time. It takes me 15 hours out of my week to produce the sermon. I would love to have somebody who could produce st- study questions or an outline based on my content or something like that. Um, you know, an AI may be a helpful tool in, in, in that regard. The reverse, however, is where you're now letting, uh, is where the plagiarism issue kicks in, is where AI is producing the content. And it's the source of the material. So it makes a better tool than a workman. Yes, sir. Wouldn't, that, wouldn't it produce, when it produces the question, I mean, that's still not your, that's not your work. Wouldn't that be plagiarized too? Yeah, well, I, I think you can say, um, you know, I use a resource to produce the questions f- for this. But if it's based on your material, yeah, I mean, if it, if it um, I guess, hurts your conscience in that way, I, I, I could see... Um, I don't know. It just doesn't. It doesn't bother me for someone to come up with uh, um, if they're producing the material for the sermon or the Bible study, and then AI giving them suggestions for Bible um, for discussion questions. So, just as an, uh, we do that at our church, not using AI, um, but those who who uh, are preaching each week, the community group leaders will reach out to them and go, "Can you give me some questions?" Um, that would relate to your sermon. And so each preacher produces their own questions, but we let the community group leaders use those questions as if those are the, the community, you know, we're not saying, hey, make sure you give me credit, you know, credit on those questions. I, I don't consider the questions significant or substantive content. Uh, I suppose if they were overly lengthy uh, or there was something overly unique about them, but when it says things like, what is Paul saying in verse 14? I mean, I don't care if you take credit for that or don't give credit for that. Um, and I can see AI producing um, s- similar sort of rubric for those sorts of things. So it's not producing the content. It's in some way or- helping organize your content, adding question marks to your content, that sort of thing. Um, let's see. Um, AI could function like a research assistant. Um, there are pastors and professors who use p- um, people. Um, they'll say things like, Hey, could you give me a summary on the you know commentaries on this passage? And so the person goes and makes and makes photocopies of you know the commentaries that the pastor or the professor can use then in their research or in their production of things. What if you don't have those assistants, right? Maybe you can use um, AI to say, give me a summary of the major commentaries on this idea. So it's not producing the content you're going to preach, or you know you're not plagiarizing their content. You're using their um, their research in a similar way. A lot of us go to Bible Gateway or use commentaries um, that are available online, monergism.com and other places like that. Um, do you say every time um, I found this on a particular website? If it's original to that website, you would cite it. But say you're using John Calvin's commentary available on monergism. There's, there's lots of stuff on monergism, for instance, um, older stuff. Um, you wouldn't say, I access this via, right? You would just say, John Calvin says, in a similar way, AI can tell you who said what. You can cite the author, and they're acting as a research assistant of some kind. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, don't let the ease, however, <clears throat> of the resource trick you into automating discipleship. Um, I think... The, the area here that we run into trouble with, uh, if we're, even if we're using AI as a resource, is um, it makes us lazy in training people to now replace the AI. So at some point, if you've got somebody that you can train to assist in these areas or train others to teach or to be researchers, 
uh, suddenly you're like, well, it's a lot easier to just keep using the computer than it is to actually take the time to teach somebody how to do this work or train them to do this work. And now we're getting into the, um, the disembodiment where it's not it's not necessary or it's not really even advantageous to the uh, to the growth of the church. Um, so identify people with these skills. Um, and actually, you know, if you're a preacher or a teacher, training somebody in this area is how you train the next generation of preachers and teachers. Um, you know, there's a reason why we spend a lot of time on the sermon, uh, sermon preparation process and preaching um, uh, uh, classes. We could very easily just say, um, you know, go use the computer or go use whatever. Um, but we work through. This is how you do exegesis, right? They take hermeneutics classes. They take all kinds of biblical studies classes. And then in the homiletics class, we spend time. This is how you uh, study a passage devotionally. This is how you uh, construct a, uh, um, you know, the main point, And this is how you outline a passage exegetically. This is how you translate into a, uh, a homiletical outline. We do all of that because we're trying to train the next generation of people who can do their own spade work in the text. Um, let's see. The, the, the danger, even in using AI as a tool, uh, even as a tool, which, again, I think is, um, um, can be okay. It can, it can also not be okay, but it can be okay, um, is that we end up sort of automating things in such a way that we still slip into the consumeristic product uh, facet of, of, of church, right? So, I mean, the comparison would be, like in restaurants or other places where um, workers are being replaced by AI and robots. And in some cases, you may think that's actually great. It's more efficient. It's cheaper. Um, I'd rather pay $6 for a Big Mac instead of 20 because someone else needs to make, you know, $17 an hour to, to make the Big Mac. And they, they bring in robots and you're like, oh, well, that's great. I don't know about you. I go into McDonald's and they have the little kiosk that you can order at. I order from the kiosk, right? Because um, I think then if there's an error, it's in the construction, not in the order and whatever else. Uh, but we're not making Big Macs, are we? Uh, we're, we're, we're seeking to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So the more we sort of outsource these things, the more trouble we run into. Um, and then finally, plagiarism of AI or the use of AI could be disqualifying. In the same way that plagiarism of other sources could be disqualifying, um, the uh, the Taiwanese uh, magazine that that talked about the, the fellow who was using it for six months AI, uh, he mentions an AI sermon outline generator, where you go in and say, "This is my text. Give me a sermon, a thirty-five minute sermon," and uh, you can tell it to give you a manuscript. You can tell it just to give you an outline. Um, and so they were using the AI to produce these outlines, and it says users can expand from the outline option to a full sermon that is at least moderately accurate, which I love that <laughs> phrase, at least moderately accurate and free of errors. And I'm thinking, well, there, there, and, and there was no wrestling with the ethics of, of that at all, much less the, the morality uh, of that at all. But even if AI is producing the material and not someone else, it's still plagiarism if you did not create it. Um, yeah, the, the error that it says free of errors, but it's the error of dishonesty <laughs> um, and taking shortcuts that erode, I think, the, quali the qualification of able to teach. Um, way back in the day, I'll finish with this and we can take some questions in the remaining time. A uh, long time ago, uh, I worked for a company called the Docent Research Group, which there's a lot of stuff floating around online about them. Uh, only 98% of it um, is untrue. So there's some true stuff, I guess, out there. Um, <clears throat> we've been accused of plagiarizing um, that Docent ghostwrites sermons for pastors 
Um, again, I, I haven't worked there for 20 some years, but that was a fireable offense. If, if, if we ever produced content for a preacher to preach, uh, if we ghost wrote sermons, you, you, you would be fired. So I, I certainly never did that. I don't know about any isolated arrangements some pastors had with their, with their docent researchers or, um, what, what have you. Um, but the, the research that we did then, uh, usually involved kind of the, like being a freelance research assistant. So a pastor would say, you know, what do the commentary say on this? Can you recommend some resources in this area? And you're creating a research brief that then they would use to write their sermon. And I had a friend who asked me, he knew I did this and he, he, um, he thought it was lame. He thought it was dumb. And he was like, you know, you, you work as a researcher. He said, if you could afford the thing, would, would you use it? And I just said, no, because I enjoy the process of sermon preparation too much. Um, but I also think in some ways I'm an outlier. Like I don't like, you know, I preach and teach from this thing, but I don't even do eBooks. Um, I like the physical book as, as you know, heavy as they'll get. If you're lugging them around in a backpack and those sorts of things in my prep, there's just nothing like being at a desk or the, or the dining room table and having all the books out and pulling the books and seeing my notes in the margins of the books and those sorts of things. And I think, um, if we can use technology as a tool, we must do it judiciously and cautiously moving forward because we're, we're losing a lot of ground with uh, the way um, even people in the church refer to the use of technology almost indiscriminately, um, not in circumspect ways. So uh, love the process of, of, of research. It'll, it'll sharpen you um, and make you a deeper person. Um, okay, we got time for probably a couple of questions, and I'll be happy to stay afterwards too if anyone would like me to. Any questions? Okay, yes, sir. So not necessarily related to plagiarism, but thinking about the disembodiment. Mm -hmm. Do you think because we've allowed that into other areas of the church, such as, let's say, online giving, where we've taken mm -hmm. that part of worship out of the service, that that's kind of what's kind of snowballing into other areas? I think at every level, even at, at levels where we we um, we can't rightly say, because there's no biblical... if. You know, if the Bible doesn't say don't do this, I, I hesitate to say don't do this as a as a moral absolute. But I think there's areas of wisdom where I, I think that maybe on is something. I, I'm not against online giving, but if you don't have a time of if you don't have an offertory, if you if you don't have a time of giving, you know, worship and giving, what is that saying to our people? So we have both at our church. Um, at the end of the service, and the way that I introduce it when I'm introducing the offering is to say we continue worshiping now through our worship and giving. And we make a little disclaimer. If you're a guest, right, you know, be our guest, you know, don't feel compelled to get, which we give all the little caveats. But to me, that's an important facet of the service. Every week, the report of the giving during the service is like nil, right? Like little kids come and give their, you know, widow's mites and, and those sorts of things. Um, it's not the, the significant, our significant offering is all online. Uh, but I don't want to remove that from the service. Um, because it is a response to what we're hearing from the Lord as, as well. And I think it's true on, on so many other levels as well. Just I'm not a Luddite, not opposed to technology, but we just need to be a lot more circumspect about the use of technology, in particular video elements and, and those sorts, uh, sorts of things. Um, yeah, trying to make church more efficient, I think, um, I'm just careful about that because discipleship's not efficient. <laughs> I mean, it's just not. Um, 
Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so for reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Have there mm. been tools developed to identify? Did you come up with that? Every yeah, action? Yeah, you know? Is that original to you? <laughs> it is. Okay. Um, <laughs> have there been tools created to identify AI produced? Yes. Um, and yeah, so I'm not as well versed in those as I, um, we have software that connected to online submissions at Midwestern Seminary, and I forget the name of it, but there's a software that, turn it in, that's what exactly what it is. Yeah, where you run it through and it'll tell you if it's, if it's been, if there's plagiarism. There are now, you can go into platforms, and I'm sure there's ways to connect those to your online platforms, academic platforms, but there's sites you can go to to paste information and see if it was likely generated by artificial intelligence. And I've used like it once, yeah. Too long where it, you've done your, you've written your basic yeah. sermon or message. <clears throat> yeah. And then you wanna refine it and you wanna like tweak it a little. So you go to a commentary and if you stay with the people you trust, great. But yeah. then you, you see something, you're like, that looks really good. How do you know? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. I had a student turn in a paper this last semester, this, this very last semester, where it, it was the first time ever I used the, is this AI? Because the, his introduction was so much better than the rest of his paper and was so much better than anything he had ever written before. So it was almost like what I could foresee. And it was like background info uh, on a particular figure, historical figure. Um, and so it just read like, oh, this looks like he went in and just said, give me some information on such and such pasted that in and then did the rest of his paper. And, but I could not, it didn't say like it was inconclusive. So it's not, it's still not fail proof. It is, it's, I mean, it can tell you if it's plagiarized and it wasn't, I mean, I pasted that into Google, I pasted the, and it, it, it didn't bring up identical document, but the AI thing will tell you if AI generated it and it was, <laughs> it was inconclusive. So I just had to assume he did really well in the beginning of the paper and Actually, I, you know, yeah. Phone. I, I do adjunct work with uh, humanities, and I actually had a student last semester that turned in a paper, and it was a lot better than his discussion board posts. Okay. And I clicked on the yep. button there, and it was 100% AI generated. Wow. And so he got plagiarism, pl um, plagiarism yep. docked for it, and had to go through the ordeal with the school there. Yeah. Yeah, and we just had one, but it was they used Grammarly to correct the grammar. Okay. And so AI matched to that 100%, but it was because they used a, uh, Grammarly, because Grammarly's AI oh. produced. So it wasn't actually yeah. that they plagiarized, it was that they just corrected their grammar and grammar. We even have rules, uh, I assume it's true, it's, it's about plagiarizing yourself. Yes. Which sounds weird, but like you can't recycle papers in other classes. Yeah, we want you to produce original content for that class, yeah. There was actually another speaker I think it was yesterday who talked also about AI and how he was talking about how like a lot of the places that say they're AI detectors are really just kind of guessing. Mm -hmm. because <laughs> that may be what I found was uh, somewhat guessing. Yeah. yeah, because they're just like, I mean, you could tell it to write it a certain way. Right. And, you know, you could say write it like it's geared for a five-year-old. Yeah, or in the style of... Another yes. author or something, yeah. I feel a, a, a slight source of pride every. So when you write a book and send it to a publisher, they do it. They submit it to their processes yeah. for plagiarism, and it always pops up like stuff that I have written. <laughs> so it's always like, hey, you pulled from your blog post on, and like, well, it's just a few lines. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but then I gotta. I, but then they make me like cite my own blog post in the book, and like even though it's the, me, it's just. They want to say this came from this source, you know, and all right, I guess I can do that. Hey, thank you guys so much. I'm happy to stick around if anyone has any further discussions or.
or questions, but I'm, I want you to get to your next place on time. So thanks for coming. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.